Uh, welcome to the Helix Center for this roundtable on why economists disagree. Uh, before we start the roundtable, and Rob Penzer will introduce the panelists, I have a few uh, remarks to make. First, it's about the program tomorrow, uh, which is the 14th. From 3 to 4.30 p.m., we have the inauguration of our poetry series, and it's called Collaborations, Jazz, and Poetry. And Louis Porter, the noted jazz pianist and uh, educator and author of the celebrated book on Coltrane, will be here along with jazz poet Sean Singer, who is winner of the Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize. Then on Friday, October 26th, and Saturday, um, October 27th, uh, philosopher and interdisciplinary scholar Maxine Schiss-Johnson will be moderating two roundtables. The first is from 7 to 9 on Friday evening, the 26th. It's called Life and Movement, Exploring Evolution, Coordination Dynamics, Sports, Social Interactions, Neuroscience, and Aesthetics as a way of understanding... Those who know Maxine Schitt Johnson's work wouldn't be surprised by this description. As a, she's a philosopher, a interdisciplinary scholar, but also used to be a dancer. Uh, but it's a way of understanding movement and life. The other participants are Professors Linda Caporel, Jesus Ilanden Agurusa, and Scott Kelso. Then on Saturday, the 27th, uh, Rob has written here 1 to 3, but I thought it was 2.30 to 4.30 also. We'll, we'll let you know. It's, uh, again, the subject is male-male competition, and um, the participants are Randall Collins, Brian Ferguson, James Lieberman, and the science journalist John Horgan. The uh, roundtable is uh, going to also touch on issues such as implications of globalizations, war, and violence. Then on Sunday, October 28th from 5.30 to 9, we have the Helix Center's first benefit it will be at Genie's Supper Club at the Red Rooster, a jazz ensemble led by uh, Jane Ira Bloom uh, will play, and uh, Mark Mitten, the uh, internationally known magician, will uh, perform some magic. Uh, if you want ticket information, if you go on to our website, www.thehelixcenter.org, you can get the information, or you can email to the center, and we will send you invitations. If you can't attend the dinner, we invite you to consider making, I would say, I would urge you, uh, Rob wrote this for me, I don't think it was strong enough, it should be, I urge you to, uh, to make a contribution, because without it, we can't survive. And so uh, we hope the benefit will help us some, and we also hope that contributions from people who are interested in these programs will be helpful in continuing it. Uh, just the last comment, our programs are webcast live, and they're archived, and um, 
if you sign to our website, sign up at our website, then you can participate in ongoing discussions that follow these roundtables, and we urge you to do that. So Rob will introduce the panelists, and then we move on. Thank you, Ed. And thank you all for coming here on such a, a beautiful fall day, which uh, guarantees that we have a very committed uh, audience. Uh, and uh, I think you'll be pleased with our uh, panel of noted economists who are going to be exploring their philosophical uh, convergences and divergences around the question, why do economists disagree? Graciela Cicilniski is professor of economics and mathematical statistics and a university senator at Columbia University. She has worked extensively in the Kyoto Protocol process, creating and designing the carbon market that has become international law in 2005, working closely for several years with negotiators of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the organization in charge of deciding world policy with respect to global warming, Dr. Chichilniski acted as a lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which received the 2007 Nobel Prize for their work in this area. She is currently the co-founder and CEO of Global Thermostat, a company that has developed and is commercializing unique technology for the direct capture of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and other sources. The author of 15 books and some 250 scientific articles published in academic journals covering economics, finance, and mathematics, Dr. Chichilniski is a frequent keynote speaker in academia, public events, and the media, speaking extensively on globalization and the global environment. Robert H. Frank, who is our moderator today, is the Henrietta Johnson Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics at Cornell's Johnson Graduate School of Management and the co-director of Paduana Seminar in Business Ethics at NYU's Stern School of Business. His Economic View column appears monthly in the New York Times. His papers have appeared in American Economic Review, Econometrica, Journal of Political Economy, and other leading professional journals. His books, which include Choosing the Right Pond, Passions Within Reason, Microeconomics and Behavior, Principles of Economics with Ben Bernanke, Luxury Fever, What Price the Moral High Ground, Falling Behind, the, Econ the Economic Naturalist, and the Darwin Economy have been translated into 22 languages. The Winner Take All Society, co-authored with Philip Cook, received a Critics' Choice Award. It was named a Notable Book of the Year by the New York Times and included in Business Week's list of the 10 best books of 1995. He is a co-recipient of the 2004 Leontief Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought and was awarded the Johnson School's Stephen Russell Distinguished Teaching Award in 2004. Jeffrey Myron is Senior Lecturer and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University <laughs> and a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Dr. Myron previously served as Department Chairman at Boston University for six years. He's been the recipient of an Olin Fellowship from the National Bureau of Economic Research, an Earhart Foundation Fellowship, and a Sloan Foundation Faculty Research Fellowship. Dr. Myron has published more than 25 articles in refereed journals and 50 op-eds in CNN.com, NewYorkTimes.com, Forbes.com, and other outlets. Dr. Myron's commentary on economic policy has appeared on CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, NPR, Bloomberg and Fox Television, BBC Radio, and in dozens of other television, radio, and print media around the world. He has written extensively on the economic case against drug prohibition, and he has been a vocal critic of the Treasury bailout and the Obama administration's fiscal stimulus. Dr. Myron is also a star teacher, and for the past five years, the senior class at Harvard has chosen him as one of their favorite teachers. His most popular offering is a course titled A Libertarian Perspective on Economic and Social Policy, which has attracted more than 900 students in just five years. Joseph Salerno is Professor of Economics in the Finance and Graduate Economics Department in the Lubin School of Business of Pace University. 
He is the editor of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics and the academic vice president of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He is a research associate of the Foundations of the Market Economy and Economics Department at NYU and a policy expert for the Heritage Foundation. He is on the board of editors of Procesos des Mercado and Studia Humana. Dr. Salerno has published over 50 refereed articles and essays and is the author of the recent Money, Sound and Unsound and has edited or co-edited several books including Prices and Production and Other Works, F.A. Hayek on Money, the Business Cycle and the Gold Standard, A History of Money and Banking in the United States by Murray and Rothbard, Human Action, the Scholar's Edition by Ludwig von Mises. He is co-editor of the forthcoming five-volume collection, Monetary Reform and the Bellagio Group, Selected Letters and Papers of Fritz uh, Matchlup, am I saying his name? Matchlup, uh, Robert Triffin, and William Fellner. He has testified before Congress on the topics of inflation and of fractional reserve banking, has been frequently interviewed on broadcast and online radio shows, including Bloomberg Radio, and has appeared on C-SPAN and Fox News, Fox Business Network, and New York Law Line Television. So without... I'm sorry? Oh, and uh, the books, uh, there, there are a number of books by, uh, uh, by our panelists that are for sale uh, in the back, and there will be uh, book signing as, as well, so we encourage you to uh, uh, stop there after the uh, audience discussion. So without further ado, I turn things over to our moderator, Bob Frank. Yeah, thank you very much, Bob. Room. And it, it's not like the forums that you see on the Sunday news shows or, or other, other popular forums where people shout at each other. I think here, here there's an audience that's intelligent enough to tell a good argument from a bad argument. And so the speakers are under some pressure not to say things that are demonstrably <laughs> false. And, and, and there, are, there are issues that are hard to reach agreement on. And I think uh, when you're ever, ever in a, a, a forum like this, it's, it's good to steer clear of most of those issues. So there's no way you could have a discussion about what the right pu public policy posture is on issues like abortion or other things. You couldn't get agreement in a diverse group on, on issues like that. But I think there are many things that we quarrel about where intelligent people could listen to a discussion of the pros and cons on each side and come away with a clear sense that there was a right answer. And so it's always been my inclination in events like these to stick exclusively to the low-hanging fruit, the, the kinds of things where it, where it is possible to, to make uh, real headway in debate. And so I'm, I'm not going to say anything at all that any reasonable person could disagree with. Uh, <laughs> We will see. We, and, and, and reasonable people will have, a, will have a chance to say whether they agree with whether I've done that. Uh, and I'm going to take the, the, what I think to be the most important issue we face now uh, and d describe how it's not a difficult issue to, to make genuine progress on. That's the lingering economic downturn. Uh, it began in 2008 with the financial crisis, as always happens in financial crises. Uh, it takes a long time to work off overhanging debt and get the, the economy back spending again. We're in the midst of what remains a classic demand shortfall downturn. There's not enough spending to put everyone to work who wants to work. Uh, if you took an economics course long ago, you'll remember the famous national income identities, Y equals C plus I plus G. Y, that's national income. 
see that's consumption. Consumption has been very sluggish because consumers are still paying down debt. They've made some progress, but it's still a long way to go. Uh, many of them have, have remained jobless or are fearful that they'll lose their jobs. They're not going to spend us out of the downturn. Uh, businesses, we've all read, are sitting on mountains of cash. Why aren't they investing? Some say it's because of uncertainty in the environment. Maybe that plays some role, but far more important than that is the fact that they already have facilities that are more than adequate to produce what people want to buy today at the depressed demand levels. If there were demand for more output, they would build bigger factories and hire more workers, but there's not, and so they don't. So C plus I, those two aren't going anywhere. What does that leave? As Keynes was, was uh, the first to point out clearly, in a, in a downturn like this, the solution is for G to get bigger. Uh, people will say, we tried G with the stimulus package, and it didn't work, so that, that puts uh, rest to that lie. Well, at, at the time, we were confronting the, the steepest downturn in employment and output that we'd seen even uh, through the early months of the Great Depression. Output and employment were falling faster during this financial crisis. The demand shortfall was something like $2 trillion per year. It was... Uh, uh, met by a stimulus program whose total outlays were slated to be $787 billion, about one-third or so the demand shortfall. And that was a $2 trillion a year shortfall, and the stimulus was spread out over three years. It wasn't an ideally constructed stimulus package, as the people who are skeptical about government will, will give us uh, reason to remember. Anytime you send the legislative body into a room to make a bill, all sorts of bad things happen along with whatever good things might happen in the process. So the stimulus wasn't up to the task, but studies of it have shown it did some good. Uh, what should we do now? I, I say stop arguing about whether stimulus makes sense. That's an abstract argument that can play out in the economics journals. I think it will be re resolved in favor of the stimulus approach. But in the meantime, uh, I'm going to make a proposal that I made in a debate I had with P.J. O'Rourke last fall. Uh, he, he and I met at the Cornell Club to discuss what should we do about the ailing economy. He wasn't inclined at the outset to agree with anything I might say on that subject, but uh, at, at the end of the, the session, we went and did a radio interview together and pushed a common set of proposals, which we then elaborated in an op-ed we published a month later. So let me just say what the solution is that I think every reasonable person ought to be able to embrace. And that is, we've got the American Society of Civil Engineers report card on America sitting in front of us. They've identified $2 trillion worth of desperately overdue maintenance projects in the national infrastructure sphere. Now, you could say they're engineers. They're just trying to drum up business for themselves. A fair point. But as anyone who's driven around New York can attest from firsthand experience, there is really quite a big inventory of unmet infrastructure repair around the country. Uh, Manhattan dumped how many hundreds of millions of gallons of raw sewage into the East River uh, last summer. Their system failing all around the country. If we want to rebuild infrastructure, there's never going to be a time cheaper to do it than now. 
The Department of uh, Transportation of Nevada identified a 10-mile stretch of Interstate 80 in that state that could be brought up to speed today. It's very badly uh, tattered. Could be brought up to speed today for $6 million outlay. That's the, for the 10-mile stretch. If we wait two years, they estimated, the repairs, the same repairs, will cost $30 million. Uh, not taking into account any of the temporary uh, shortfall in, in demand that we're facing now, just because the roadbed would get uh, more heavily disrupted and we'd have to dig it out deeper and, and the re repairs would escalate fivefold with two years' wait. Throw on top of that the observation that the people who could do those jobs uh, are many of them sitting idle today. Uh, they would not have to be bid away from other useful tasks as they would be uh, if we wait until the economy's back on its feet before we attend to that. There are equipment uh, uh, that there's equipment that is needed to do those jobs sitting idle in the yards. Materials are cheap now in world markets because the, the whole world is in a downturn still. The interest rates on the money needed to finance these projects have never been lower than they are right now. If we wait, all those costs are going to go up. Uh, the Capitol Dome is crumbling. The, the, the uh, Northeast Rail Corridor desperately needs capital improvements. Uh, when is the time to do that? Right now is the time to do that. That would increase spending. It would put money into the hands of people who would go out and spend it on other things, and it would begin to circulate. That's the traditional stimulus. But even if it did none of those things, we would get jobs done that need to be done at a fraction of the cost that we'll end up incurring if we have to wait. So again, that's what I see as the, the most important and pressing problem. And I think there's an easy way to make progress on that problem that all people of goodwill ought to be able to agree on. So what PJ O'Rourke and I recommended was send a, a bipartisan commission into a room with a report card on the American infrastructure and allow them to identify which projects should not be funded for immediate uh, uh, green light. All others get the green light and we start work on them right away. If people want to object, we can't borrow more money to finance more government spending. The debt is already crippling our grandchildren. That's, that's an incoherent objection if you think about it more carefully. Think about a family uh, trying to decide whether to put insulation in its attic because energy prices went up. It's going to have to borrow money to do that. We'll have to go into debt further than it's already in debt. Should it do it? Uh, the answer to the question uh, can't be determined without looking at the logic of the investment. If the investment is going to cost 50 a month to pay off the loan for doing the work and it's going to reduce their utilities bill by 100 a month, there's no cogent argument against doing that investment right away. And the sooner you do it, the better. That's the situation we're in with infrastructure, and we could get the economy back on its feet in a hurry. Once we get the economy back on its feet, we'll have to worry about what to do about budget deficits, which are truly an important long-run problem, what to do about uh, health care costs, which are a big, uh, important part of that problem, and a host of other things. We'll get into that as the panel unfolds. But uh, that, that's my claim uh, about what, what we could do now that no, no reasonable person should object to. And let me just invite in clockwise fashion. Jeffrey, do you want to take first crack at all that? Okay, so I'm not going to, I'm going to come back to your specific remarks in a second. The question that was posed was why do economists disagree? And just to prove that economists are truly disagreeable, I'm going to disagree with the proposition that economists disagree. Okay? <laughs> Of course they do disagree, but I want to argue that in an important sense, 
they agree, and they agree way more than many other disciplines. Okay, what they agree upon is a methodology. Economists across political perspectives, across which school they were trained at or whatever, they agree that we should have models that are mainly mathematical models, sometimes are written down in words, but could be written in mathematical equations, that we should think about those models as generating testable hypotheses, meaning statements about the world or forecasts about the world that one could examine with data, and in principle, if you had the right kind of data, either reject or fail to reject, and so, like any science, we would be able to see which models, which hypotheses about the world seem to fit the world and which one didn't. Okay? Now, of course, you, say, you should say to me, if all economists agree with that, okay, then how come there's so much disagreement about many things, including relatively technical, factual type things? Why? Because we can't do controlled experiments for the most part. Now, there is a branch of economics that does a lot of experiments. Okay? I'm going to leave that aside because they're not quite experiments in the same sense as a biologist can do an experiment on whether watering plants helps them grow or not. When economists experiment on people, they know they're being experimented on, okay? and that might affect the outcomes of the experiments. For a whole bunch of things we care about, such as the stimulus, it is impossible to do a real double-blind placebo-controlled experiment. We don't have a parallel universe in which Ben Bernanke did not increase the money stock or in which the Obama administration did not propose a stimulus. So we can't really know whether the Keynesian model is accurate or not or to what parts of it are accurate and things like that. Can so, historical information help Historical that? episodes are always, almost always, frequently contaminated by the fact that there are many things going on, some of which we can't control for, and we don't always know which came first, the treatment or the response, or the anticipation of the treatment, and then the observed response. So in Professor Frank's example, okay, one issue that comes up is uh, how people are responding to the fiscal cliff and how are people responding to the debt and things, the stimulus. If people knew it was coming, okay, they might have changed their behavior before it went into effect. That makes it harder to draw inferences from the data. So what we generally try to use is these historical sort of quasi-experiments, but they're highly, highly imperfect. It's really hard to disentangle the cause from the effect. So given that if we agree on a methodology that says we would like to be able to do experiments, but we can't do experiments, then what happens? Then I think two really important things take over. First of all, economists, because they're people, have very different views about efficiency versus redistribution. Okay? If you can make economists across any political persuasion answer questions in a very specific way and say which of these two policies is likely to increase the size of the pie, I think you get a lot of agreement. Okay? So in a textbook, in a setting of an academic paper, in a seminar room, there's not so much disagreement on how the model would work, what effect it will have on who gets to eat the pie versus how big the pie is. But different economists have very, very different views on whether they think policies should emphasize making the pie bigger or trying to get the pie divided up in a fashion that's regarded as fair. Secondly, an auxiliary problem is economists disagree a lot, or they just don't really know because we have even less evidence, on which policies will end up being implemented by the political process in a successful way. So say in the setting of global warming, economists might tend to agree that the ideal policy is a harmonized global carbon tax, and yet 
they know that it's not likely that we're going to end up with a global harmonized carbon tax. And so then you're asking, well, which of the imperfect policy responses to global warming, some kinds of cap and trade or Kyoto protocols or certain types of regulation on the use of carbon-based energies, which of those will get us closer to a decent policy? That depends an awful lot on politics, and economists don't know much about that at all. So I think we do agree on a methodology we disagree because we're people and we put different weights on the objectives of policy and we have different understandings about how to get particular policies to actually be adopted uh, and implemented. So just really quickly, I'll, I'll just leave it at a sentence or two for now, I disagree with some parts of what Bob said about the stimulus and about doing lots of civil engineering projects, except that if you Think of, the way I think about it, he basically said we should use cost-benefit analysis to decide what transportation projects we should do. If that's exactly the way the stimulus had been done, I would have been behind it 100%. But I think large parts of it did not satisfy the reasonable cost-benefit standards. Joseph? Okay. I want to follow up on something Jeff said. And that is, you know, why do economists disagree? Milton Friedman gave an answer to that a long time ago when he said, well, economists don't really disagree on ends. Everybody's in favor of prosperity, uh, most people, except the, the worst misanthropes. Um, but we disagree about the means. And uh, the means are basically the different theories that you use to implement ways to achieve prosperity and stability and supposedly all these ends that we uh, all agree on. Um, I, I used to believe that. I, I don't really believe that much anymore. What I think is that um, we also disagree on ends, uh, very, very deeply um, disagree on ends. Uh, because once you begin to prescribe um, policies, uh, tax increase would be good, you've stepped outside your role as an economist. Um, you, can, you can describe what would happen if you increase the tax, and, and, and you can disagree on that with other economists. But once you say that, I think it's good, and therefore we should implement it, you are then making a value judgment. And economics, just like medicine, is a value-free subject. So if, if, if a doctor can say, uh, the point of competence of a physician is to say, well, if you put arsenic in that person's drink, then that person will, will um, uh, certain bodily functions will cease, and that person will, will, will die. Um, if the, the uh, a physician goes beyond that and says something like, and that's murder and you shouldn't do that, well, he's no longer speaking as a physician. He's speaking as a citizen with a certain scale of values. And there might be someone that wants to kill Hitler or, or kill a dictator. Um, and so we don't all agree on, 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 on the ends. And that's the point I would like to make. Um, uh, for example, I don't think a, a dollar spent by government um, on its favorite interests or, or bailing out big co corporations and especially financial institutions, I don't think that's equal to a dollar spent by um, a, a family who earns, earns the money. In other words, I would make a distinction between taxpayers people who produce and earn through exchange on the market, and tax consumers. That distinction was made a long time ago by a polit political theorist, John C. Calhoun. And what Calhoun said was, look, society, the only two classes in society, forget about men and women, blacks and whites, gays and straights, the only two real classes that you see in every society throughout history are the tax consumers, those that live by either taxing without giving something in exchange or printing money, and those who live by the sweat of their brow. So I look at the economy as, 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 as in class conflict from the beginning uh, to its very, very depths between those who live through government and those who live um, 
by, by earning, by producing what consumers desire. Whether or not an outside observer like myself or Bob likes what's being produced by the market, whether it's pornography or Beethoven concertos, um, that's besides the point. So just to get to Bob's point, um, I do want to say that I disagree that there's a spending shortfall. Um, I think, in fact, that what has occurred is that we have a regime uncertainty. That is, entrepreneurs, after coming off the euphoria of the boom from 2001 to 2005, realized that they were deeply wrong about things. Now, the Federal Reserve during that period increased the money supply by official Fed statistics at about $1 billion per day for five straight years, beat the interest rate down to 1%. I think this caused tremendous profit and loss miscalculations, caused overdevelopment of certain sectors, housing and so on, and instead of allowing prices, the asset values to drop, now they pumped up household net worth, that is the value of your homes and the value of your 401ks, by $23 trillion okay, in the course of three years. When the crisis struck, you had a, a drop of about $15 trillion in household net worth, which was equal to the G annual GDP of Japan, Great Britain, and Germany. Instead of allowing asset prices to adjust, instead of allowing other prices to adjust, other costs and so on to adjust, in a downward direction, which is what should have happened, what happened was that, that we had stimulus, and then we had QE1, QE2, and QE infinity now. Right? There's $40 billion every month being pumped in to buy mortgage-backed securities. I think that is giving pause to entrepreneurship in this country. They don't know what's going to happen with the fiscal cliff. Beyond that is, is the huge debt that's going to continue to grow. Um, and I, I think that the, the, the uncertainty about Obamacare is something else that's causing uh, all of this to happen. If we're really worried about spending, and I'll stop after this sentence, um, let's suspend the income tax, the personal income tax, for one year. Let's just suspend it. Okay, that, that, that was actually put forth by a few economists right after the, um, the financial crisis. I'm all in favor of that, two years. Okay. Then we'll have people with productive saving, um, instead of expanding credit to get, to, to, get, to get more spending. We'll have productive saving, and we'll have consumers, the earners, arranging their affairs in a way that, that brings them greater satisfaction. I'll stop there. It, it was proposed to eliminate the payroll tax. Was that a proposal that you favored as well, Joseph? Well, I mean, the, the income tax brings in between 42 and 47 percent of, of, of federal revenues. Uh, the, um, the, uh, the payroll tax maybe, I don't know, 40 percent or 38 percent. Either one is fine with me. Yeah, that was proposed okay. and defeated in yeah, Congress. I, yeah, yeah. Graciela, did you have a, an axe to grind in any of this, or, do you, or feel free, obviously, to go off in your own direction? First of all, the question that we are uh, meeting here about why economists disagree Excuse me, we can't hear you. So maybe you can. Uh, no, there is, is, there, is there? Can you increase the? Hello. Yeah, just go ahead. Continue. You're they'll fine. Turn, they'll turn you up. They'll, they'll turn you up. You just continue. Okay. So can you hear me now? No. Not enough. Just keep talking. Though. How about? How about they'll now? Keep talking. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes? The lady there. Yes. yes. Good. Thank you. 
So the question that we're here to address, first of all, why do economists disagree? And here I have to uh, agree with Jeff that, um, in fact, we agree too much. Let me explain what I mean. The, um, the human being has several nervous systems, at least three. We have the central nervous system. We have the uh, uh, brain. We have the, um, uh, the gut, which is a sympathetic nervous system. They don't agree with each other. As a matter of fact, when you, your gut wants to eat, but your brain wants to lose weight. Has anybody, <laughs> anybody faced that phenomenon? <laughs> All the time, right? So uh, we are a composite. As a matter of fact, 95% of the DNA of a human body is microbial DNA. It's not even human. So it, it would be seriously surprising that people that have so different um, nervous systems, which are the uh, reactions that we have to the environment and how we want to act and make decisions, would agree. Because we, I don't think we can agree with ourselves, number one. And there is a good reason for that. Nevertheless, um, some of what was said here, I have to agree with. And uh, some I have to disagree with. But I want to take a slightly different perspective. I do understand the importance of focusing on the crisis and getting out of it. I do understand that there are many people unemployed. And most families I know are in trouble, one way or the other. I understand this is a very painful situation for the majority of people in the nation. And therefore, I don't want to skirt that issue. But I have to agree here with Joseph that I didn't do anything there. Sorry. No, I know. It's just... I have to agree, agree with Joseph that uh, the, the proposal, in fact, I made to, uh, uh, to the Obama administration in 2008, which is partly being implemented now, really goes back to an artificially inflated uh, market, and we have to allow somehow those prices to adjust. And if we just did that in the right way, and there are right ways of doing it, uh, we can get to a balanced situation without so much pain. And here is where I probably will disagree with Joseph, in that everybody has to uh, pitch in, and not just the homeowners. And this includes the banks. And the banks have been part of the problem, not the only part of the problem, but a significant part of the problem. And as far as I can see, we didn't get around to correct the situation with the financial and the banking system the way most people would like to see. And there is no reason why the unemployed people and the taxpayers should pay for that enormous bubble that was created by the financial institutions and that created so much suffering that has to be resolved. And one of the reasons there is such a lingering of this uh, uh, current crisis in terms of depressed demand 
is because we haven't dealt with that problem. And there are ways to do it, and renegotiation properly done, and affecting everybody, not just the home owners, and including the banks. Yes, sir, including the banks. A sacred cow that uh, shouldn't be a sacred cow. It's, it's an institution like anything else. We created it. And in fact, you know, they are under revision. So for all of these reasons, I partly agree with Jeff. I partly agree with Joseph. I partly agree with Bob. But I have to say, all of this, in a way, is the topic that was chosen by Bob. Very important pop topic. He wants us to focus how to get out of the recession. We all need to know that. But I want to uh, be a little bit more demanding. Where is the rationale of an economy that were the way out of the recession and the situation in which there is so much suffering? Let me put the emphasis on suffering. I, I, I am shocked about the amount of unemployment in the United States right now. I'm shocked about the amount of suffering. It's unnecessary, and it's cruel. It's cruel, and it's going to be felt for generations. And we ought to be doing something about that right now. I, I don't want to gild the lily. But having said that, the situation now should not be one where we resolve the issue by inflating consumption. And that was the first C in the equation that Bob was telling us. I'm not criticizing Bob. He's right. That's the equation we learned, where the economy output has, best, you know, 75% or two-thirds, whatever, is consumption. I got it, okay? But I think everybody around here realizes that an economy that can only resolve its problems and stop suffering by inflating consumption when we are the highest consuming nation in the world, something is wrong there. Okay, so uh, uh, without going into much detail, we are in a moment of change. We are changing values. We have to face that change. Getting out of this depression this recession and depression, uh, and the future ones, and the volatility that will continue to come, should not be about increasing consumption. We need to fundamentally restructure our thinking about the economy. I call this the green Eisenhower moment. And here I agree with Bob. Eisenhower would know so well what to do in this situation. Think about it. He created the network of roads uh, in the 50s. He created the waterways in California. He even put the first uh, satellites on and created, in a way, the telecommunication system, which is fundamental for globalization. Eisenhower would know what to do about this. And nobody will be sitting here criticizing Eisenhower because of government action as far as I know. So this is the Eisenhower moment, but I want to say it must be green Eisenhower. And here I go into Oscar Wilde. You will excuse me. Oscar Wilde said, not the only one, that an economist, like all of us, are people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I suspect we're going to end up agreeing on quite a lot amongst this panel, and, and, and that's, that's not a bad thing, uh, even if people are disappointed that they didn't see more fireworks. Uh, but the value of nothing means that we start to change our values. We are changing our values. And here I wanted to add something that Jeff mentioned. The carbon market that he mentioned, the Kyoto Protocol, in which I did a writing, which I designed, is really about changing values, global values. Because that's what market prices represent. They represent our values going out of whack right now. And we're trying to change values and in creating these new markets. And by the way, here I disagree, the new values don't pit equity and efficiency against each other. We are no longer in the zero-sum economy because the foundation of this economy now and this change that is coming is a public good, is knowledge. And knowledge can be shared without losing it. So right then and there, believe it or not, we are no longer in the zero-sum economy. So we can take advantage of what's coming, we can do this change of value, and we can incorporate all these changes, and we have to do it, because I think particularly the young people, and I, there are a few here, but not that many, I think the young people feel, and they're right, we screwed up the world economy for them. And another way of saying is, I'm just looking at this single young person I see there. <laughs> Look, guy, let me just tell you, either you do it, nobody else is going to do it except the young people. I tell that I'm my students at Colombia. <laughs> we got to change the way we're going around the economy, which is what Oscar Wilde was talking about. And the young will have to do it because it's true that we screwed it up. So in that direction. The, the the public goods aspect is an important part of the conversation, uh, but go, to go back to one of Joseph's points, uh, I think the agreement is much broader among economists than your analysis of the, the equity versus uh, efficiency issue might have suggested, because right now we are uh, enmeshed in such deeply inefficient situations. I think this is part of Graciela's work that the, the old saying that economists like to, to throw out, there's no such thing as a free lunch. That means if you get more of this, you have to settle for less of that. That's true when you're doing things as well as they can be done at the moment. But when you're being grossly inefficient, it's possible to make the pie bigger. That's what inefficient means in our parlance. And here's a graph I show my students 50 times if I show it to them once during the term. It's two pies side by side, one bigger than the other. And the, the, the slogan that they can all uh, shout out in unison after the third or fourth time is that when the pie gets bigger, everyone can get a bigger slice than before. And so when you're moving from inefficient to efficient, it's just a failure of wit not to be able to come up with a, a scheme for dividing up the new larger pie in such a way that everybody sees advantage in making that move. So, so there's, that doesn't sound like a recipe for controversy. If you, can, if you can actually talk about policies that would make the pie bigger, and I think your carbon taxes, people's exhibit... Carbon market, not that. Carbon market. Tax goes to okay, or you you can you can educate the rest of us about why a carbon market and a carbon tax are two different things, uh, but.
Getting people to take the right price uh, on, on activities that discharge carbon into the air is a very important part of, of doing things efficiently. We're not doing that now. And if we do that, then that's not going to make the economy have to scramble for more resources. It's going to save resources. And if you, if you have a bigger pie than before, you ought to be able to sell that to the electorate because there's a way to divide up a bigger pie that, that makes everybody happier. And so, so I think there we... We could get into arguments. I mean, once we have a fixed pie and we have to decide who gets what share of it, there's, there's obvious room for argument. But while we have room to expand the pie, there ought to be low-hanging fruit for agreement. And what is the pie made of? The, the, the pie is the economist's metaphor for the total value of everything we care about. It's got to be, we have to stress that it's a very inclusive measure. It's got to include the nuisance value of noise, the, the, the risks to life and safety, the, the concerns time. you have about uh, everything that might matter to you. So, so that's the pie. And if people are making decisions, ignoring costs that they impose on others, one simple example, I can get on a congested roadway for free in most parts of the country. When I do that, I make everybody who's on that roadway take longer to get where she's trying to get to. I impose a big cost. It might be worth a dollar extra to me to go at that time on that roadway. The cumulative nuisance to everybody else having to wait longer to get where they're going might be tens of thousands of dollars. So my case for being able to get on that roadway for free is a non-starter. I have no right to assert in that situation. Uh, unless you think I have a right to harm others willy-nilly without compensation, that's a, a strange political system if you think people would bargain freely for a, a, a system that gave you that right. So there are all sorts of things we do now that cause harm to others that we don't take into account. And if you want to think about long-run budget solvency, uh, nobody who's looked at the numbers thinks we can get there by cutting out wasteful government spending. Uh, there is wasteful government spending, uh, but when we try to cut government spending, we cut what we can. Uh, every program has its defenders. We cut the ones uh, whose defenders scream least loudly. What did Bush cut? Bush cut the Energy Department's program for rounding up poorly guarded nuclear materials in the former Soviet Union. These are materials that are uh, in poorly fortified uh, centers guarded by soldiers who aren't paid regularly to drink too much. Uh, Paris want these materials. We shouldn't cut the budget for that program. We should increase it, but we cut it. Uh, we cut the National Science Foundation's budget for uh, scientific research, the, the backbone of our competitive advantage historically. So cutting government spending, yeah, if you find wasteful government spending, they can get legislators to agree to cut well and good. But everybody who's really looked at the numbers thinks we need additional revenue, especially when you look at the tens of millions of retirements that are coming in the next years. And so that means you've got to figure out where to get the extra revenue. And I think a good place to focus attention in that discussion is on things that we do too much of to begin with. A tax has two effects. It raises revenue, but it also discourages the thing you tax. And if there are things we do now that cause harm to others that we're not taxing, voila, that's a, a, a possibility for killing two birds with one stone. No, you can no killing birds. <laughs> All right. Give me, give me your metaphor of choice. Uh, we, we, can, we can solve two important problems at once if we, if we shift our focus in that way. So uh, let's just... 
this is a loosely organized panel. Jeffrey, yeah. I, so I, I can't tell you what to, to talk about. I want to come back to Graziel's statement that the banks should have paid more of the costs of recognizing that housing prices had been inflated to values which weren't true values and related to arguments about policy and the response to the financial crisis and his illustration of economists disagreeing. So lots and lots of people were very upset that there were bailouts, that banks were helped out because banks seem to have been sort of very, very importantly involved in the fact that housing prices got excessive, that too much mortgage lending was extended and so on. So one view was, well, these banks did silly things. They're about to lose a lot of money. Let them lose money. They're the ones who should take the hit. Of course, some homeowners would take hits as well because they could, no matter what, they couldn't afford the mortgages they had, but make banks take a large share. Now, that's not what happened for the most part in D.C. For the most part, the federal government, the Treasury, in combination with the Fed and Ben Bernanke in particular, basically pushed really hard for the banks to take money. Why? Because they had a model in their heads. It's actually the model that Ben Bernanke more or less is responsible for in the economic literature in conjunction with a few other scholars. Um, and it was work he did in the 1980s when he was uh, st still an academic economist. In his model of the world, okay, when banks fail, it's not just, or any inst big institution fail, it's not just that some wealth is redistributed. The really simple view, the sort of pre-Bernanke view, if you will, of a bank failure is, well, some loans were made based on expectations that something good projects were going to happen, a lot of profits were going to be made, but somebody was mistaken, those profits didn't occur, and so now that loan can't be repaid, somebody has to take the hit. If a meteor had come down and destroyed half the housing stock, there's no magic wand that magically recreates that housing stock, it's just gone, somebody has to take the hit. So one view was, Housing is worth much less than we thought. Somebody has to eat that. Maybe it's the homeowners, maybe it's the banks, but somebody has to take it. And to give it to say that the banks were insulated was a kind of redistribution, was a statement about who bears the cost that clearly lots of people from many economists to Occupy Wall Street found really unappealing. So why did Ben Bernanke and Pat Paulson and a Republican administration, after all, which gave us TARP, defend the notion that we had to protect all these banks, that we didn't want to let them just fail. And whatever banks survived, survived. Their claim was, based on Bernanke's model, that there's an externality, that there's an inefficiency when banks fail, that when one big bank, especially when very big banks fail, it affects the whole lending process. It affects the intermediation between good uh, borrowing projects, between good borrowers and banks, and it would, make the whole, it would have made the recession much worse than it already was going to be by virtue of the fact that clearly a lot of housing wasn't worth as much as we thought. So if you believed Ben's model, his story, that there was this negative spillover, this negative externality inefficiency from letting big banks fail, well then you could convince yourself that it was actually in everybody's interest, once you understood what was really happening, to protect the big banks. Now, if he were right, I think almost every economist would sign on. Lots of economists did sign on and agreed with that, but there was a, a vocal minority. For example, there was a letter in Wall Street Wall Street Journal or New York Times signed by 166 economists, of whom I was one, saying, no, we shouldn't be bailing out these banks. We should let them go bankrupt. Okay? The bankruptcy is the better approach. Now, there's lots of variations on bankruptcy, but for the moment, just think that it meant letting them fail. So how do we resolve that? Okay. You'd like to resolve it by having observed a parallel universe in which okay, there was a different Ben Bernanke who had let the banks fail, and then we could see what happened. 
as Ed suggested a few minutes ago, well, we can't obviously do that, but maybe we can look to historical examples. There are not a ton of historical examples that one can point to. I've asked a bunch of my friends, my colleagues who are economists, what's the evidence that letting really big... this to Argentina some years ago in terms of what happened to Argentina. Isn't that historical evidence? It, it's historical evidence, but it's contaminated by a lot of things. Most of the places where a lot of big banks have gotten in trouble have been places where a lot of bad things were already happening. How do you figure out how much of what happened after those big banks failed was going to happen anyway because a bunch of bad things were already in process and how much was actually caused or exacerbated by the fact that those banks failed. So every single one of my friends pointed to the same academic study as proof that bank failures okay, cause these big externalities. It happens to be a paper written by Ben Bernanke. It was published in the American Economic Review in 1983. And it's about the Great Depression. Now, first of all, it wasn't about big banks. It was about small banks. The distribution of bank sizes was very different. So at a minimum, it's not entirely on point because it was a somewhat different experiment. But secondly, the paper turns out to be not very robust. Okay? It turns oh. out the results are fragile. Oh. So, and it's one piece of evidence in a non-experimental setting. So there's room for economists to disagree. And I don't want to necessarily, I mean, I have taken sides, but that's not my purpose here. My point is we disagree because we can't do experiments. We can't figure out things where everyone would agree. If we could have that parallel universe run the experiment, then we would all, based on a common methodology, okay, have common policy recommendations. Can I respond? Sure. Uh, yeah. um, Bob brought up the point about uh, the, the political feasibility of cutting um, spending. But I, I think that there is room, even politically, to cut spending. Um, the U.S. is a big welfare warfare state. There's a lot of spending on welfare, mainly corporate welfare, by the way, and a lot of spending on, on, on warfare. Again, it goes into the pockets of the big corporations. Um, what I want, I want to suggest is that um, cutting, cutting the defense budget is, is a beautiful thing. I mean, right now, the U.S., um, spends about $750 billion to $1 trillion per year, depending on all budget items. Um, that's about 5 to 7% of our GDP. Um, we spend 43% of world military spending, the U.S. spends that much. Uh, we, have, we, have, um, we spend eight times more than China, next biggest military spending, spending 14 times more than Russia. We spend 53% more than the other top 10 military spenders, 53% more than all other nine combined, including Germany and Great Britain and France and so on. Um, we spend $106 billion on, on intelligence. We have 9,600 warheads. China has 300. It's estimated that if, with 1,000, you can kill everybody instantly. With 300, you can kill a lot of people instantly and then pretty much the rest of the world through, through disease and so on. To make a long story short, there's a, a big area to, to cut, and that is to stop the wars in Afghanistan and Iran, which have cost us over $1.3 trillion, or $1.5 trillion, depending on who you believe. Stop the war spending. Close the military bases. We have, uh, I wrote down a figure last night, we have, we have 700 to 900, depending on who you believe, military bases in 130 countries. Close them all down. China has zero. Russia has three or four in foreign countries. Close them all down. You can cut the defense budget in half. Now, there's billions there. So, you, so, so you, can, you, can, you, can, you can satisfy the Democrats by cutting warfare, or, or at least left Democrats. Most Democrats want to cut uh, warfare a little bit and increase welfare. That's what we saw with, with Obama. The Republicans want to, want to increase warfare spending and cut welfare spending. 
Well, once you've done that, and that's what Reagan should have done in the early 80s when he had the chance, said we were in a deep crisis, we're going to cut across the board. Then, and this Bob will, will disagree with, I'm sure, um, you can zero out some, some, some of the so-called welfare agencies. The Agricultural Department, which is just a big subsidy to agribusiness, you can zero that out, get rid of that. Get rid of the Commerce Department, which basically is a marketing program for big firms overseas to increase their exports. You can get rid of the Department of Education, which we did not have for most of American history, and so on. So you can cut on both sides. And, and, and you can get a coalition of both groups to support that by saying that, look, we have a tremendous crisis here. And by the way, those resources would then be infused back into the, the um, uh, private economy to be used productively. What's the I'll example of a country where this grand bargain has ever been carried out? What's the example of a superpower that spends half uh, 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 of what everybody well, else I agree does. the U.S. Is, spends way too much on defense, and I agree that with almost okay. everything you said about what would be desirable, yeah. but I have to agree with Bob that the political prospects for any kind of grand bargain like that are, seem infinitesimal I, based but, on our observation. Well, but can we all these countries are in bad shape. At least not, we four agree that it would be a good idea to make very large cuts in the defense budget. I agree with that. Jeffrey, you agree with that. Yeah. Graciela, do you, do you agree with that? Yes, uh, I think the main thing is to stop these unnecessary wars. Yeah, yeah. That would be a start. That those wars cost much more than what is recorded under the billions of dollars that are spent in defense, which is less than 8% of the GDP. Those wars are, you know, are, they are sinking our reputation globally. Mm -hmm. We, they are unnecessary, they are not getting anything for the nation, and they are costing trillions. They're not. making us hated. They're making us hated the world over. We've developed endless enemies. Um, quite frankly... So I we can add that to the list of low-hanging fruit <laughs> yeah. that we can all, yes. all agree but to. But on the other hand... If I we want, were in power. But remember, that's bad from a stimulus perspective. <laughs> You'd want to replace that spending with some other spending. Paul That's Krugman's right. make up a modern invasion. And, and he's suggested exactly <laughs> the opposite really? of we'd agree to. He said we should convince the country that the Martians are invading, and so we need to build a ton of anti-Martian missiles and tanks or whatever, because that would be more government spending. Well, yeah. and, and, and I think he believes it. <laughs> Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman. In print. Well, he's a speaker. <laughs> <laughs> There is another way to do. There is another way to do something like that, but without necessarily focusing on military expansion. Okay, mm -hmm. and again, I want to say the last speech of Eisenhower was about. Okay. An unnecessary military expansion. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to emphasize Eisenhower so much, but I think the guy was a genius. <laughs> anyway, so, but what I wanted to say about that is that there are things like that which are low-hanging fruit and could play that role and do good at the same time instead of kill people over, over the world, over, all over the world, innocent people, civilians all over the world. Uh, the, the Chinese... The Indians and the, essentially the BRIC countries, but mostly China and India, have benefited to the tune of $50 billion, just $50 billion for in the last six years, from the Kyoto Protocol Carbon Market Clean Development Mechanism, long words, which means that this market, that doesn't cost money to anybody, the carbon market, which is now mandatory in California. And yes as of 2012, and which is now growing in four 
continents, Australia, Asia, the European Union, where it's trading $215 billion a year, and the Americas. This market has the, costs nothing to nobody. No, nobody has to put money for it. It makes money. It is different from a carbon tax because a carbon tax, you give money to the government. And if you want to have a global government to give tax to, I don't think so. No, it's not going to happen, at least not in many years, that they will, the United States will contribute to a global government that collects taxes. On the other hand, the United States is moving through the California carbon market and through the federal March 27, 2012, uh, limits on carbon emissions from power plants who kill a lot of children through asthma, the U.S. is moving in the, the, the direction of convergence with the global carbon market. Why? It's called no arbitrage. Markets, you can have two markets side by side, one charging one price and another one charging another. So the California carbon market and the federal carbon market, that this March 12, 2000, sorry, March 27, 12 resolution, supported by the Supreme Court, will sponsor, will create, I can explain, but will converge. All of these markets are going to converge. They created the largest exporter of solar and wind equipment in the world in five years through those $50 billion I told you about. Who is this? China. Wait. Why is China benefiting from it and not us? Simple. Because China uh, not only signed like we did, but it also ratified the Kyoto Protocol. We could be benefiting from that. We have the best technology in the United States, the best innovation. We need that new energy, clean energy, that changes values in the right directions, in the right direction, and involves the best thing that this nation has. How do I know? Because I benefited from it. I was born in Argentina, and I did my educational system here. And let me tell you, this is the best educational system in the world particularly the graduate level. And in terms of risk capital, respect of property rights is the best territory for the knowledge economy. And the knowledge economy, we are leading it. We're there. So why not embrace this and do what uh, Krugman was suggesting, but instead of doing it for destructive purposes, for constructive purposes? Energy that is clean and essentially stop the unnecessary consumption of environmentally degrading uh, commerce that nobody wants anymore. Nobody wants big cars anymore. Nobody wants to have more clothes. Nobody wants to spend more money. <laughs> okay, well, he may. Here's Not where- me, but other people want more clothes. <laughs> So the, the, the whole, the, there is a direction. It is happening globally. We need, our economy is moving in that direction. We know, don't know it, but it's happening. And this is change staring us in the face. Instead of disagreeing about what's happening now, can we move forward to the future and have a positive disagreement about what the future should look like? Uh, it is easier to create the future than to anticipate it. And we should be, I sound like a fortune cookie. <laughs> it's true, it's true. So let's do it, let's do it. 
Okay, let's, good. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about uh, the subject you raised earlier, consumption. Uh, this, this is one that I've been interested in for many decades, and it, it's, uh, I think, important to understand the forces that drive it, whether it, 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 Ed questions whether people really have turned away from wanting big things. Uh, I think the fundamental driver of consumption has been how the income distribution has changed over the last three decades. What we saw right after World War II for three decades was pretty uniform growth across all the income classes, about 3% a year for rich, middle, and low-income families alike. Since the, the mid-'70s, virtually all the income growth has gone to people at the top of the income ladder. It's the same pattern when, within every group. If you look at college graduates, it's the same pattern. Those at the bottom aren't doing very well compared to 30 year, years ago. The ones in the middle have gained a little ground, not much. The gains have been uh, the lion's share of them at the top. And if you look at the top 5%, most of the gains there are in the top 1%. There, the, the, the biggest gains have been in the top one-tenth of 1%. So that's, that's, the, that's the demand shifter that's been going on for 30 years. What's happened is that the people who've gotten a lot more money are spending more money. That's totally the expected response from people in every income group. You get more money, you, you build bigger, you buy, buy more expensive. And the, what's, what's equally clear is that people in the middle don't seem offended by that. They seem to they want to see pictures of the yachts and the mansions. They're not, not shaking their fists in anger. They kind of think they'll be rich someday or their kids will be. Let's see what's in store for us. So there's, there's not any case to be made that the pub, public is made indirectly less happy by the spectacle of the rich buying fancy things. But here's what has happened. The rich spend more on their daughter's wedding. They spend two million, three million. That means the people who are just below the top rung uh, have a new standard. They want their daughter's wedding to seem special too, but special is a relative concept, so they spend a little more. Now, it's, it's cascaded all the way down the income ladder. The average American wedding costs $30,000 in real dollars. In 1980, it was $11,000. And no one, I don't think anybody on this panel would be willing to say with a straight face that couples are happier now because their weddings cost three times as much. It's just that the standards have shifted. Why have they shifted? Because spending at the top went up dramatically, and then there's this sort of indirect cascade that, that ripples throughout the economy. And talking about waste, uh, much of that extra spending has been pure wheel spinning. Is a CEO happier with a bigger mansion? Why does he need one? It's because other CEOs have a bigger one. If he didn't, then his company would appear to be in jeopardy, uh, and, and he couldn't entertain in the style that was expected. And so if we could just figure out some way to steer the dollars that are going into more expensive coming-of-age parties, bigger mansions, and are then cascading down, putting a bigger burden on people in the middle. The, the median new house in 2007, the height of the housing bubble, 2,300 square feet. In 1980, it was 1,600 square feet. Why is the median house bigger? Because of this cascade. The people in the middle aren't earning more. That's not why they're building here. And if they didn't spend in, in, in line with what their peers were spending, their kids would be the ones that went to the schools with the metal detectors out front. You know, if you don't keep pace with spending standards for your community, your kids don't go to even schools of average quality. So, so that, I think, is, is probably the biggest source of, of found money to address more important problems is to figure out how to steer money that's now going into that. 
So, so my, my simple proposal is scrap the income tax and have a much more steeply progressive tax on consumption. You report your income, you report your savings. The difference between those two numbers, that's how much you consume during the year. That amount minus a big standard deduction is your taxable consumption, and then the tax rate starts low and it goes higher and higher. The more you consume, it's, a, it's, it's fiscal alchemy. You, get, you, you sort of squeeze the mansion growth rate down a little bit. You squeeze the spending on coming-of-age parties down. All those dollars are freed up to do green investment or, or, or things that really would make a palpable difference in the quality of people's lives. I, I read that, and I like it. I read, you wrote this in, I think, in one of your articles in the New York Times. I've been writing about this for 15 years. I thought it was a great proposal. Uh, I want to make, may I just say two things? One is, I was struck because your argument about economy is exactly the same as psychoanalysis. That is, it is exactly the same. Because the argument is that we cannot, if we are seeing somebody in our office, how can we do a double blind study? And so the problem with that is eventually it becomes a, a, a science of opinions. And what you described is that what we are seeing now is Bernanke's opinion. It is not proven. It is not factual. You undercut it even more by saying that, in fact, the data isn't even very good. So that's, I'm surprised that we have this to share as psychoanalysts and economists. <laughs> But the other well, question I wanted to ask, which relates to what you said and what Graziella said, and in fact all of you have said is, what is the goal of economy? Yeah, good well, question. We should ask the audience. Do no we will come to them in a few minutes. Oh, let's yeah, go, agree. let's go. There's lots of room to, to argue about that, but one thing we shouldn't argue about is whether it makes sense to make the pie as big as it could be. But also because if we made it bigger, everyone could get a bigger slice, which just means that everybody could do, could come closer to fulfilling his his life's vision. Right, but that doesn't mean consuming more. No. So the no. C the, of consumption. The pie is everything we care about. Yeah. Right. So we, that's what we should be talking about. Yes. One there are there are hands from the All audience. Right. Do we want to open it up? If you're anxious, you're ready for it. I'm okay. sure. Sure. You have to come here. Wow. You Some cannot ask from questions. where you are sitting. Sorry. Well, people with questions. Chief? Very good. Thank you all very much. Um, it's kind of building on where your conversation's at. Is there a common agreement among you, the heck with all economists, about the role or the notion of the common good uh, defining the common good in economic terms of economic priorities, does, does the notion of the common good is it relevant to economists, professional economists? It's not a term we use frequently. We much more tend to use the terminology that Bob used, which is the size of the pie versus the way the pie is distributed up. And we almost always agree on things that are going to expand the total size of the pie. Uh, much of the time, any given policy might simultaneously both affect the size of the pie and affect the way it's divided up. 
And so then there's lots of room for people to disagree because it depends which one of those two things you care about the most. Is the avoidance of environmental degradation a shared common good? Yes, of course. Yes, but that's, yeah, we can, actually, we yeah. would describe that as increasing the size of the pie. We okay. want the pie to include bads. Right. We, right. we net out bads right. as we add goods. So. There is more agreement on that yet than Jeff is letting on. Uh, in fact, there is, a set, there is a set of nations in the world economy that lead the world economy. And it has changed over time. G7, then G8. Now it's G20. And it includes both the industrial and the developing nations. Why? Because for the first time in our recorded history, developing nations are now the engine of growth of the world economy. The most important segment of economic growth in the world is the developing nations. It's no longer the OECD nations. So the G20 now has prominently nations who are, have not even gone through the period of industrialization. Think about it. And in Pennsylvania, when the G20 was created in 2009, they made a big declaration. And I have the declaration. And anybody who sends me an email, I'll send it to you. Because it is focused on sustainable development. And sustainable development is what you were talking about, what you were just asking Jeff, in your words, which are golden words, because this is what people think about, okay? But also, from the economic point of view, sustainable development is connected to how we use the resources in the planet and how we organize ourselves. In a moment of change, this is a major question. Your question is very major. To come to a point of agreement, I think, I think we could say most people will agree that survival of our species is an overall agreed objective, survival of the species. Well, guess what? There are serious questions about whether the economic, the way it is structured today, with its limits on resources and environmental use, the way we are changing the atmosphere of the planet, its bodies of water, and the complex web of species that makes life on Earth is consistent with the survival of our species? Or is it driving towards extinction? This is a big question. So we should be addressing that question right now, if we are interested in survival. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, one of the questions that Dr. Nesessian brought up towards the end, I thought, was one of them. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. One of the questions that Dr. Nesessian brought up, or the points that he brought up, I thought was particularly relevant to the discussion that wasn't really included in this discussion. It was touched upon by several individuals. And it's also something that I believe is missing from the national narrative on economics. And that is that um, the relevance of personal individual psychology and the role that that plays in the decision-making, the purchase decisions, the, the prioritization that, that plays in buyer behavior or economic behavior investments and that sort of thing. I realize that there is <clears throat> a science called axiology. I'm not sure if anyone's ever heard of that, but axiology, it's a, a, a relative measure of one's individual values and, and the psychological propensity to, to drive behavior or drive uh, actions, uh, um, making choices. 
Um, if that, um, I guess my general question to the, to the panel would be, if there were a way to somehow evaluate that, if there were a way to, to somehow measure that as a backdrop, economic policy in theory, would that change? Would that be able to impact or change your, your perspectives as, as economists, and would that change the impact of economic decisions that are made? Just to add to that, doesn't Steiglitz talk about something which replaces the GDP with uh, some other G? The happiness index? Yeah. There have been systematic yeah. attempts to bring in yeah. non-market aspects of behavior that we assign value to and somehow factor them into a measure of how well we're doing. Yes. GDP clearly leaves out a bunch of things we care about. There is another way of looking exactly the same thing that Bob is saying, which is that by introducing new systems of property rights and the new markets that go along with trading them, like the carbon market, but also markets for biodiversity, markets for sulfur dioxide emissions that exist in the Chicago Board of Trade, markets for water, etc. We create the values that will change the GDP. So it's not just to throw the, you know, the baby with the bathwater, bath but actually you can transform the market by creating new property rights on the limits that matter for survival of humankind and letting people trade on them creates the values that then change the GDP. It's the tail that wags the dog. And one thing that showed up clearly in this was the, the sense of human motivation and how people respond to tax changes. I think there's been uh, a, a long-standing assertion that if taxes go up on people at the top of the income distribution, they'll begin withholding their effort. Uh, and it, it, it resonates because I think we all accept the idea that people respond to incentives, and, and it seems like if you raise people's taxes, you're reducing the incentive to work. But in fact, economics is really quite silent on what the effect of a tax increase would be. It makes you poorer, so it might make you feel like you have to work harder to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve. It also makes taking time off cheaper, so that cuts the other way. If you look historically, uh, people worked many more hours 100 years ago when the real reward to working was a tiny fraction of what it is now. So there's, there's no compelling reason to think that if the tax rate on people went up, they would suddenly quit the game. I mean, the, the, the more subtle view of human motivation is that people at that level are getting all sorts of rewards from being a CEO other than the take-home after-tax pay. They're, they're a player. They're, they're, they're in charge of something. And so I think uh, once economists begin to embrace that, a lot of these debates about the sort of narrower assertions about incentives go, go off to the side. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. Um, do economists really think that their models and theories can increase the size of the pie? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Tyler Cowen's great stagnation uh, hypothesis that the main reason for our problems is that there's been no new invention, no new wealth created, no new ideas. I mean, I'm sure if that a new cheap source of energy was found, say fusion energy, all these economic problems would be small and go away, and all the policies are really rather meaningless. It's what creates wealth is new knowledge and new advances in science. 
I wonder if people can give your names because you're anonymous to me. What's your name? <laughs> Mel Melchner. Say that again. Mel Melchner. Mel Melchner, thanks. And your name? Francesca. Francesca Perciano. Okay. You want to tackle this question? Yes. I Go ahead. I, you go ahead. I mean, I think lots of economists believe that various policies will affect the incentive to innovate and will affect whether people who innovate can take advantage of their new ideas because their intellectual property is protected via patents and copyright and things like that. So that's one way of reconciling your two statements that do policies matter or is it innovation that matters? But secondly, I think a lot of economists think that policies matter too, whether they're well-defined property rights, whether the government is intervening in places where regulation is beneficial or is intervening in places in ways that are mainly protecting some industries relative to other industries. I think economists think that has a lot to do with whether economies have a big pie or a small pie. I think that's... I mean, okay. communist countries versus roughly capitalist countries, sort of the the, basic, the most obvious comparison, most economists, I think, believe that because central planning was leading to a lot of inefficiencies, not letting market prices signal what was scarce and what was not, that those economies tended to be poorer than economies that mainly used capitalism to allocate resources. Do you think that Steve Jobs or Bill Gates did what they did because of tax policy or any other policies? Uh, based on Steve Jobs' biography, he actually cared a lot about tax policy. He cared a lot about the innovation. And he cared a lot about the innovation policy. He, cared, he worked very, very hard to make sure the innovations he created were protected so that he could earn a profit. That was after, that was, that was after he became wealthy. I think that was through the history of it. Mark Cuban just wrote an article that said he doesn't care anything about, and he never did, about tax policies. That he would have done what he did regardless of what the tax structure was. I don't quite believe that, but I think a lot of these guys are driven by other motives, as Bob has pointed out. But I did want to say one thing about Cowan's book, and that is innovation is not enough. I mean, you can put a bunch of scientists and really bright guys, engineers, on an island and not have other resources. I think saving and capital investment allows these innovations to be put uh, developed in commercial form. I think that's very important. That's where tax policy matters more. Okay. My question is about Brett. My name is Brett. Uh, my question is about historiography of your field. Um, there are historians, and even in the 19th century, who have written about the kinds of money and institutions that have gotten behind promoting certain schools or suppressing others. Um, the American Economic Association, 1880s, um, backed Rockefeller, Carnegie, etc., when they were doing a lot of building of institutions in this country. Um, Catherine Cryer, in book Patriot Acts, does a great job of showing how economists were used, um, selectively used by institutions, by the owners of banks, more or less. Um, it doesn't surprise me then to hear this story about Bernanke's paper and his theory that he would be the one put into the position um, by the money people who fund the presidential elections. It wouldn't surprise me, given Catherine Cryer's book. Um, recent, uh, Eric Beinhocker, in, in his book about complexity economics, talks about, opens the book with the kind of suppression of behavioral economics by Chicago school neoliberal 
efforts, probably in the 70s. Herb Simon is, um, is, is featured in that story. So I, I wonder if you can talk about the institutions and the money that has shaped you, um, continues to shape you, given your CVs, and why the curation of this panel um, doesn't include other fields of economics that some of you allude to, but they're not here today. And why would the panelist, the curator of the panel, pursue this binary, which we're so used to, and they get so much money behind it, the two sides, not just the one. You've said that you even, always, you even often agree on things quite a, lot, quite a lot, but those things where you disagree are also well known to us. Those points. Start the center and do what you want. So let me say just on one part of what you said. I in no way, shape, or form think that Bernanke's position on the crisis or anything else has anything to do with being in the pocket of banks. Yeah. Okay? I think Bernanke is one of the most objective. He's one of the best economists, despite the fact that I'm a hardcore libertarian, and a lot of libertarians are not very happy with Ben Bernanke, the Fed. And I disagree with him about some things. The notion that he did what he did for any reason other than his objective attempt to try to fix the economy is not, he didn't, it's just wrong. It's just everything I know about Ben. He, he's a co-author of mine, and I know him very well, and that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Though, though you might, might say very quickly that as a profession, Economics, in some sense, took over the, the function of, of the old crown and church. The, crown, the, the king needed, needed people to sell his um, descent from the gods to, 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 the, to, the, to the masses. Uh, and before that, you had the chief and the witch doctor. Well, I think here you do have economics after the progressive era, starting World War I, going through World War II, the economists began to be the new intellectuals or the new priesthood that sort of sold a larger and growing state. Now, as to whether any particular economist is, is any, in anybody's pocket, that's another question altogether, and I agree with the, what they said about, about um, Bernanke. What, what the research that's been done on conflict of interest shows very clearly is that no one, everyone recognizes that others are subject to conflict of interest, but almost no one thinks he himself is subject to it. And, and, uh, we all agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing many people in the audience saw the film Inside Job. Uh, many economists who were interviewed in that film, I think, had good reason to be embarrassed by positions they had taken on behalf of the financial services industry and regulators. I was thinking of one in particular, uh, watching him squirm. Uh, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> He had been hired by Iceland to do a review of their of their financial regulatory oh. system, and and I'm not in the finance uh, field, uh, but it was so easy to imagine that if I had been an accomplished finance scholar and had been approached by the government of Iceland and and somebody told me what a brilliant scholar I was and 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 why it was really worth three hundred thousand dollars or whatever the fee was to do a a review of their regulatory system. System, how I could have allowed myself to believe that I was uniquely positioned to give an objective evaluation of it and, and how easy it would have been knowing that they had paid me that much and, and they have been really nice to me and might hire me to do something again in the future, not to want to say anything horribly nasty about them. You're, you're, you're not in the world we live in if you don't recognize those kinds of influences on people. And I think, I think you just have to design institutions in a way that pushes back against that, and we, and we haven't done a good job of that. I think there is two, uh, two facts that explain much of what 
Brad, where is Brad? Yeah, what Brad was asking about. Um, and they're not so uh, evil as they seem. But the first one is people desperately want to be useful. And this is misvalued uh, generally, but it is really the only source of happiness I know when people feel they're really useful. And the second fact is the way that uh, the brain operates has nothing to do with my observation, but it is, has to do with neurobiology. The brain constructs uh, structures, frameworks to think, and is extremely reluctant for good reasons to move off the frameworks. And the reason is that we have very limited capability, so we screen all the information that we get by having frameworks. For example, you walk into a tennis court, you don't think from scratch what you are going to do with the ball. You walk into the tennis court and you go into framework. Okay, this is a tennis court. And then you automatically play. And you can actually talk about what the players say. They do play automatically, unconsciously, and talking about psychoanalysis. But there is one more thing that was discovered recently which I find is fascinating, which is that the cortex uh, makes it acknowledges a decision of what is going to be doing, watch this, after the decision has been made. So most of the brain is dedicated to justifying and the court is justifying the decisions you have made. Now, if the brain is doing that, how can you bur blame Bernicke? <laughs> Go ahead. My name is Patrick. I am a commercial credit manager. I'm a, I'm a credit manager for a bank. Um, I, I am. Uh, I'm with Mr. So Professor Salerno. I'm an Austrian. Uh, I'm an Austrian because of what I saw at a micro level ten years ago. I saw the rates go down, and I saw people, whatever their motivation was for buying the big house, they could get it with a three percent arm. And why save when the CD rates are one percent? Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a lot. Of, I saw we, the banks, pumping and pumping credit that was, you know, created credit, not savings because people weren't saving, created credit into an asset, and there were lots of reasons why we did that. But our calculations are a lot simpler than yours. We have income over debt service, which changes when debt service is lower. Uh, the, the cap models, the WAC models, the, the, the cap M models, it assumes a, a rate of return, and if that's higher than. The interest, the, co the capital cost, that changes. We're going to we're going to fund more deals, and they're going to do more deals because it it does cash flow at the temporarily low rates. Uh, we saw I saw guys going into construction, uh, building a couple of McMansions a year, making one hundred twenty, hundred eighty thousand dollars a year with a high school education. It seemed like it, it, this can't last forever, and it seemed obvious that it was driven by the rates and the credit flowing into the flowing into this. To what extent does everybody else agree that? You know, now that I've read more about economics, it's the Hayekian triangle seems to explain it. And, and to what extent does that matter? Does it matter if if the Austrians are basically right about how how we got here? Does, is that relevant to? Does that mean that they get that we should put them first in terms of uh, how do we get listening to how to, how do we get out of it? Can, can I just I'm going to give some anecdotal empiricism. I know a, a, a vice president of former vice president of loans um, who was in Las Vegas during that time. And one of the loans that they made was to uh, a fire, a retired fireman from New York City who wanted to buy a home for himself and, and a home for, um, uh, to rent, for rental income. They talked him into buying 25 homes without, without a down payment. 
I mean, that, I mean, that was, it was crazy. And, 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 but I think it has to do, it's not just everyone going mad. It's not due to necessarily sinister motives. It's due to the fact that we had a tremendous falsification of monetary calculation throughout the interest rate structure. And, and, I, and that's what uh, Hayek, the Nobel Prize winner, has emphasized with this Hayekian triangle. I mean, that's just one sort of uh, model of it. But I, I think that, that's a key. Um, I don't think it was just a sudden onset of greed. No, but a, a much more important dimension of, of that whole dynamic was the lifting of effective constraints on leveraging up. Exactly. The, the, the banks uh, in most countries are permitted from loaning out more money uh, than a certain multiple of what they have in assets. The deregulation of the banking system here effectively loosened those limits severely. And, and when you're in a financial asset bubble, you can make even more money by borrowing and buying even more of the bubble whose price is inflating. And, and there were people I know who thought, well, the prices are already too high. This doesn't seem safe. But then here's, here's the one thing we know about people. They can't sit on the sidelines while neighbors who are stupider than they are are making a lot yeah. of money without doing anything. So, so, so you, you, you had to dance while the music was playing. That's been one of the comments that's been made about this. And, 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 and the, the, the parents who borrowed when the banks let them borrow, think about the situation they were in. John McCain was very critical of people who had visions of grandeur buying vaulted ceilings and granite countertops. But when I bought a house, I needed 25% down. I, it was a, a short, short loan. My kids could buy houses with nothing down and, and balloon payments. And, and if you don't spend what people in your income level spend on a house, it's your kids that go to the, the bad schools. And so others were borrowing more. They were allowed to borrow more. They spent more. So what am I to do as a parent? Send my kid to the school where the metal detectors are out front? Uh, or, or borrow more myself and hope for the best? I'm, I'm going to do the, the second thing. And, that, and that's not a, a prescription to deregulate the banks. That's a prescription to regulate the banks more tightly. Yes. Absolutely. And here's the thing. Just before the crisis erupted, you could see the uh, leveraging factor was close to 40 times. 40 times. Now, here's... He, that was he at gave, the end of the quarter when they cleaned up their books. Yeah. It was 300 times in the middle of the quarter. But the point is that that leveraging itself is something that you cannot do in Las Vegas, taking your example. If you try to play in Las Vegas at those stakes, and you don't show that you have money to play, they won't let you play. So my question is, why can the banking system and the US economy have a regulation which is as good as Las Vegas? You know, Bob touched on a good point um, about the deregulation. Only the, the asset side was deregulated. When you have a fractional reserve banking system, and you still have FDIC insurance, and you have too big to fail doctrine, you can't, I'm an Austrian, I'm anti-regulation, but you can't deregulate the, the asset side and allow all of these imprudent investments. There, when you have fractional reserve banking, that's sort of guaranteed to be bailed out. But as far as deregulation, I just want to mention that under the Bush years, spending on, on the SEC increased 11.3% per year, every single year. And, and, and the staff grew by 1% a year. And we also had um, a, a tripling of spending from 1980 to, 19, uh, to 2005 or so on all 
um, uh, agencies that had to do with financial regulation. So I don't think more regulation is necessarily the story that comes out of this, but we can agree to disagree on that. Thank you. Hi, my name is Bob. Um, you know, we're talking about why economists disagree, and there was really, I think, very little disagreement on this panel. Um, what, it, no, I, I, I don't mean that in, in a derogatory <laughs> manner, but um, the values of the people on the panel are pretty much in line with one another. Um, you mentioned happiness is what everybody's seeking. I don't know about that. I think power is what a lot of people are seeking. Um, and I think the kind of disagreements that we have politically and the inability of, of the parties to talk with one another um, far transcends economics. I think that the disagreements have, have so much to do with, with bad will and with the lack of shared values and, and with our political system. And I, I, as much as I learned, and I learned a lot in this, in this discussion, but I didn't learn anything that's going to help us make that leap um, to the political arena and get more agreement there so that things can get moving. I hope I'm wrong, but that's my sense of things. I, I, if I could just say, when I wrote a piece advocating the progressive consumption tax I described, uh, in 1997, I got a very warm letter from Milton Friedman a week later uh, saying he didn't agree with me that the government should be raising and spending more money. This was at a time when Clinton budgets were edging into surplus. But he went on to say that if it did need to raise more money, I think most people now think that it does, the progressive consumption tax would be the ideal way to do it. And he enclosed in his letter a, a reprint of his 1943 paper from the American Economic Review in which he had advocated a progressive consumption tax as the best way to pay for World War II. So there's a concrete proposal. I've now seen a book from AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, mm -hmm. where two scholars are advocating it. Uh, and that would make the, make the pie bigger and generate a lot of revenue to pay bills that we need to pay. So don't say you didn't get any proposal for moving forward into the future, because I tried to get that one out there. You know, I think of the climate change issue, and, and I think of the tremendous amount of money that's being spent for people who want to deride climate change science and then say that it's false science. Um, that, whatever you're doing with economics, it kind of doesn't, doesn't work with that. It, it's a tremendous... I don't know what to call it, but it's, a, it's more than a fly in the ointment. It's more an ointment than the fly, I suppose. Graziella has to leave in five minutes. I wanted to apologize for that, but this so, was known in advance. Yeah, I have to go to, I have to fly to London. So. so we will kind of move faster if we can. That's an you, can, you can leave, but we can finish yeah, And that's an important day. question. I, I, I wish I had more time. It is very important. Hi, I'm Steve Miller from Bridgeport, Connecticut, the home of P.T. Barnum, who said there's a sucker born every minute and two to take him. Um, I was going to agree with Professor Salerno until he said there was nothing sinister. What I want um, <laughs> Professor Salerno to comment about is when, when this cash is going to be worth absolutely nothing. 
But I want to put into that context, please, on top of Bernanke's crazy, Ike would fire Bernanke in a second, crazy uh, creation of, of uh, fake money that he lies about every time he testifies before Congress under oath. What about the $680 trillion, which I love to hear the word notional, but that's not the deal. There's $680 trillion in, in off-balance sheet accounts. I mean, that is a number that's so crazy. I don't, I, nobody wants to... You mean unfunded, unfunded you know, liabilities of the federal no, government? No. I'm you talking about off-balance sheet accounts. Yeah. That, that the banks never uh, deny. They don't say, no, that's not true, okay? That grew from like in the late 1980s from about 15 trillion to this number of 680 trillion. Supposedly there's 400 trillion in swaps that are in these off balance sheet accounts, okay? That nobody ever even mentions. It's like, wow, I don't see how, where does this money actually come from? And, and how, how crazy can it get? And, and the one question that I just want to throw in here and then I'll sit down is, is the idea that bankers are going to seduce people to take money like the 25 condos or something and get a fee, okay? That's what they're doing. They're getting fees. They're putting the money in their pocket, and then they go ship it down the street to their buddies at the rating agencies who, who, who put AAA on everything. You know, I mean, if that's not sinister, you know, P.T. Barnum hit it right on the head. There's a sucker born every minute. Who to take them? So that's the problem here. It's like we're we're in this political correctness deal that that is. The media just keeps the propaganda crashing into into the skulls of everybody. I don't. I don't know. What, let the man I don't know anything about the, the um, off-budget accounts of six hundred and eight trillion dollars. I mean, that's my. But I do want to say one thing. Well, I do want to say one thing about hyperinflation and, and the money being worth nothing. I, I don't think we'll have a hyperinflation in the United States. What I do think is that after a while we're going to have galloping inflation. It's going to scare them, and when I, I fear. And I think we'll have within five years, maybe even fewer years, is wage and price controls. I think that's what, what we're, we're headed for. I think we're going to go on with a sort of a, uh, inflationary recession or stagflation for a while. The inflation is going to get worse. And at some point, they're going to slap on some form of incomes policy or wage and price controls. I, I, I think that that has not been talked about. And I think that that's uh, possibly, very possibly in our future, very likely in our future. The world economy is about $60 trillion. Dollars. It is known that the derivative markets are a multiple of that. That's more or less the number you're talking about, 600 trillion. Yeah, that's the number you spoke about. So derivative markets originate from people being able to take position without having to make a deposit on the position. That is the leveraging factor we talked about that he mentioned was as high as 300. And what I said about... Uh, what happens is like in Las Vegas is when you want to make a bet, you have to show that you have a proportion of that money on you before you can play. Otherwise, they don't let you play. You cannot make unbounded. Of course, you put it right down on the table. 
understood. Well, I'm trying. Hundred percent is a proportion. Yes, I'm trying to say no, but there is more than that. You cannot make bets when you pay poker, etc. Going beyond what you actually can show you have, and what I'm trying to explain is that precisely is the opposite of the concept of derivative markets, in which you can go short. Okay, so that you can sell something you don't own. And this is what requires regulation. By the way, this is no different than what already happened in the 1930s. So this is not something we're inventing now. I have to go. <laughs> Thank you. But you have to remove that and then you can go. Graciela. Graciela is on her way to London. That's. <laughs> we'll I think it's for them for Just you. Tell, tell Rob we'll take care of it. Okay, ask your question. You want me to autograph them for you? Um, hi, my name is uh, Ron, and uh, I'm sorry to see Graciela go because I was most sympathetic to what she had to say, but uh, I'd just like to make my points as briefly as I can. Um, uh, this uh, forum was about uh, whether or not economists agree or they can agree. Uh, I, I would uh, put forth a very simple proposal that... Um, this crisis that we're facing now is basically, it's a financial crisis. It's not an industrial uh, crisis. Uh, this is all about money and banking. Um, and uh, one of the gentlemen mentioned that, um, yes, they brought it on, but, um, you know, if we don't save them, the whole ship goes down. Um, so they're too big to fail, so whether we like it or not, um, we we got to deal with it, but I think we're all familiar with a, a saying that you know when you when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Um, nobody is addressing this too big to fail issue. Nobody is addressing the whole monetary banking system that got us into this crisis that is stronger than it ever was, and that uh, will probably lead us to the next one. So. Um, so, because, because we have three more okay, people, just ask a question. Okay. Please. So, um, two very brief points. I do believe that uh, all economists do make moral um, judgments before they form their models. It's almost impossible for a human being not to make moral judgments and then create models that work with their moral judgments. But the final point I want to say is that uh, as economists who do make moral judgments, I think the most important thing for you is to get on the same page on what you believe is the ideal solution, not what is the doable solution. Put out to the public, this is the best possible thing that we could do, and then let the public decide whether it's doable or not, instead of giving us proposals that are band-aids because you think, well, maybe politically feasible. That's my point. Thank you. So to, to be clear, I am not 
advocating too big to fail. I am right. one of the biggest critics out there of too big to fail. I think it's a disaster. I'm ex I was trying to explain why Bernanke thinks that too big to fail is something that we have to, that we have to do. And many economists agree with Bernanke. I'm certainly in the minority amongst economists. Because they're convinced, maybe you incorrectly, but they're convinced that the consequences of not bailing out big banks would be even worse than the consequences of bailing out big banks. Because we don't agree on the ideal proposal. Yeah. I mean, there are a few areas where we do actually agree. Yeah, Economists yeah. are pretty much unanimous that rent control is a bad right. policy, that free trade is a good policy, a handful of other things. And yet, millions of countries for, for millennia haven't followed those policies. Yeah. So just laying yeah. out something yeah. we agree on doesn't seem to be sufficient. Okay, next question. Hi, Maria Cavallo, a student at Columbia University. Sorry. Go right up to the microphone. I'm Maria Cavallo, a student at Columbia University. So there's been a lot of talk about a pie, but I think the first question is who is making the pie? And as Dr. Salerno said, there are only taxpayers and tax consumers. So if the government is in charge of the pie, that means we have bigger government and bigger tax consumption. And as Hayek says, central planning can't work. So how would you respond? Thanks. So the, that sounds like a variation of the 47%, the, the makers and the takers argument. I think that's, that's the wrong way to think about government. I think uh, government is what we do, not what some disembodied institution does to us. We make the government. There are lots of countries where the citizens feel good about their governments. They think the governments deliver good services and the, the public officials are, by and large, free of corruption. And government just the idea of government recognizes that the individual's own interests don't coincide in all cases with society's interests. I mentioned the example of my decision to get on a crowded roadway. There's nothing I can do to prevent you from getting on a crowded roadway. If it's not important for you to get on it, you'll get on it if it's better for you than not getting on it. But your presence there makes all the rest of us wait for hours longer to get where we're going. But all of us acting together can implement an easy pass technology that charges us, we charge ourselves for the privilege of getting on a crowded roadway. Then we decide for ourselves whether it's valuable enough to go at that hour or whether we'd save um, more money and not suffer much inconvenience if we went at a less crowded time. That's government. Uh, and to say that's social engineering, well, you know, homicide laws are social engineering. Stop signs are social engineering. There, there's just no presumption that what the individual wants to do is for that very reason alone what ought to happen. Sometimes individual action is in harmony with social interests, but not always. Okay. Um, my name is Walter, and I'm, I'm a neurologist, so uh, I usually engage in value-free judgments. <laughs> and that's a lie. <laughs> um, what I'd like to pose as a question is, uh, obviously, uh, there's going to always be disagreements among uh, well-intentioned people looking at the same data. Uh, we have a lot of data to look at. We can look at Japan, for example, and uh, look at its last 20 years, not just the last 10 years, and see a massive failure of advice coming from economists. We can also look at Europe and see that it's in full-blown crisis, um, that they're also getting uh, advice from well-intentioned economists, and what they're on the verge of is a revolution in Europe, possibly the next war. We don't know. 
Um, and it doesn't stop there. Uh, it comes right back to our lap uh, as to whether or not we're pursuing policies that have been demonstrated to have failed in the past, simply repackaging them as the best we can do. There is one other country that's worth thinking about, which is Germany at the end of World War I, when reparations were literally destroying Germany from the inside. And their economists gave way to their bankers who said, we can't afford to maintain Germany as it is. Therefore, we're going to start the printing presses. Eventually, they did dig themselves out of that hole and were invested in heavily by Americans who accepted the German solution, which was not deflationary, but rather the opposite. And yet, no one here has broached that aspect of uh, agreement or disagreement as to whether or not that's a possible solution to some of the problems that we're having. You know, let me just quickly say, there was a economist behind the German hyperinflation who was an eminent monetary economist named Carl Helfrich. Um, believe in the quantity theory and so on. But he was the one who said, really, it's import prices that are going up. German, the German market is being attacked by speculators, and therefore we have to print more money to catch up, um, to allow people to pay the higher prices. So um, even though he wasn't the, the, the central bank chair, he, um, chairman, he, he, was, he was somebody who was very influential in that. So economists can be wrong. I mean, economists, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, they have, it's an art. It's an I don't quite understand the question. Is the proposal that yeah. the U.S. economy would do better if we generated higher inflation? It's, it's not a proposal. It's, it's just a value-free question. In other words, would we be better off with inflation versus a deflation? It seems that Bernanke is very worried about the U.S. plunging into an uncontrollable deflation, yeah. and a lot of the stimulus is exactly an attempt right. to prevent that. Well, the risk that of seems to be what's offending going on. Harry Truman, I'm going to have to say it depends. Yes. <laughs> it depends why you're having inflation or right. deflation. So there's not a, real, it's not a short enough answer to, to give to that. But certainly there are risks of deflation. There are periods in U.S. history where we had very substantial deflation and real economic growth yeah. was quite robust and some of the most robust growth in U.S. history. So deflation per se is not the issue. It's things that are going along with particular deflation, such as collapses in aggregate demand, as Bob was explaining earlier. Okay, last question. Try to slip two in if I can get one for free out of a panel of economists. My name is Stuart. Um, to begin with, uh, how could you compare the cost of bailing out the system through from, by bailing out the consumers, uh, putting a, a floor that is a mortgage guarantee program in place, uh, allowing the cash flow of structured bonds to go unimpeded? What, is there a way to compare the cost of the two approaches? I'm not sure I understand. So the I guess two so. Ta we. Had bail out the banks, bail out the consumers that are, you know, bail out the, the stop the foreclosures, bail, bail out can people maintain who are the water flow of the structured bonds. And then that way you could. At some level, we're trying yeah. to do both the HAMP program, the other mortgage programs that we're trying to prevent defaults and transfer money to homeowners. We're going in that direction. If you do that, then yeah, the mortgage bonds won't default, and then the banks are in trouble, and then you don't have to worry about whether to bail them out or not. Right. So but it may question. also have disincentive effects. If it encourages people to not be as careful about taking out mortgages they can't afford. I just am asking about the cost. What would the difference of cost in cost have been if there's any way to, to analyze that? I'm sure some economists come up with the cost benefit now. Any of us knows, but yeah. uh, Bob Schiller and others have described this as a collective action problem, that it would be 
good for the banks even if collectively they would write down their their mortgage loans, uh, but any one bank would not find it in its interest to do that. And so uh, a way to circumvent that collective action problem that's being experimented with in several areas that have had severe high incidence of underwater mortgages is eminent domain at the, the local level. The city governments are seizing uh, underwater mortgages and uh, under eminent domain and then essentially forcing them to be written down and then putting the, the properties back on the market. And, well, uh, let me just add really quickly to that. Um, you know, there, there is a cost to, for, uh, to stopping foreclosures. I mean, what's wrong with falling prices? As the housing prices fall to more natural levels, to, to market-adjusted levels, at, at that point, there are people who are the poor, lower-income people and also people who are prudent during the boom, didn't get caught up into it, who can afford houses now? Don't forget, the houses aren't going to go unsold if they're foreclosed. They're going to be turned over to people that didn't make bad decisions. I don't think that's such a bad thing. But writing down those loans doesn't prevent the price from falling. It would I mean, that, yeah, yeah. Right if anything, it would uh, accelerate yeah, the... the yeah, yeah. It would have, though, at the beginning, if, it, if we backed all the... Uh, at the beginning. All the ARMs, right, before they defaulted and before the assets that were structured upon them became toxic, uh, it would have propped up the price of the housing market, and there would have been negatives that I'm sure you could associate with that as well. But if I can try to squeeze my second question in, um, is there a point at which we should target uh, diminishing the GDP? Are there circumstances under which we should target contraction rather Real than GDP? growth? Yes, contraction rather than growth. Not if it's being measured no, reasonably. Yeah. You would not want to make the pie smaller. But the pie the consists pie isn't of... exactly the same as GDP. Right. There are certain parts of the pie that we definitely want to make smaller. And we, we have instruments uh, that, that can achieve that. I think... If, if the overall pie gets smaller, everything will turn nasty in a hurry. There's been some very convincing research that the, the willingness of society to clean up the environment, to assist the needy, to do any number of things, as your colleague Ben Friedman's uh, uh, work, is way greater when economies are growing rapidly than when they're shrinking. It's much easier to give up part of your gain for a common purpose than to take away from things that you're already doing in order to fund a common purpose. That really relies on how, to what value we assign uh, health and happiness in the pie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you gotta, you got to be talking about the right ingredients in the pie for any of this conversation to make sense. Right. I ask the question because it seems that it's the consider, considering the, the contraction of an economy, an intentional contraction, is never considered. And just from a philosophical background, it seems like something that should be at least considered. Because we think that in almost any recession or any slowdown of growth, all of the aspects of, that we care about, material goods like houses and toaster ovens and health, okay, go down. Hey, lots more people become unemployed. That's not good for their health. Fewer people can afford health care when there are recessions. That's not good for their health. So most of these things we care about that are not explicitly in GDP are pretty highly correlated with GDP. And so looking at measured GDP is a very good proxy for all of these things that we care about. Once, once it's more, not perfect, but it's a pretty good proxy. One more caveat to that. I'm not in favor of targeting, government targeting anything. But, for example, if people suddenly became aesthetics and wanted to move to the hills and become hippies and communes, <laughs> and GDP shrunk as a result of those voluntary decisions, it's fine with me. What if they want okay. to sacrifice? Well, I think we have okay. to stop. Thank you very much. I uh, thank the panelists and thank you for
go on. Yeah. No doubt we could go on forever. Thank you. Oh, sure. Thank you. Thank you. Sure.